Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs. And today we're lucky enough to have Fred Stevens Smith with us. And Fred is the CEO of Rainforest, which is all about helping companies with quality assurance and testing, which we'll talk more about. And Fred started Rainforest in 2012, and they're growing quite fast. They were part of the 2012 Y Combinator class, and recently they raised a Series A of $12 million, from a, which was led by Bessemer Venture Partners. So 12 million bucks, they've got a little money to uh, work with. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about Fred's background and then a lot about Rainforest and what they're up to. So I'm pretty pumped. Uh, Fred, thanks for uh, joining us today. My pleasure, Dave. Nice to talk to you. <laughs> so uh, let's let's start off with your background and then we'll get into Rainforest. So can you just tell uh, tell us a little bit about your background and where you came sure. from? Sure. I mean, yeah, absolutely. So me and my co-founder from England, um, we both have, I guess, you know, fairly typical backgrounds for startup founders. Um, I, you know, the standard thing, like, had my first business when I was very young, doing, like, bullshit web design. Oh, am I allowed to swear on this thing? <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, it's encouraged. <laughs> yeah, so yes. Doing it good. Doing <laughs> bullshit web design. And, um, like, my first customer was my dad. And I did like a website for his like little, you know, company back when everyone was like, oh, we need a website, like with a contact form. Um, and then I did like a, uh, I basically through, through that, I started doing websites for, for people in his network. And, uh, that ended up being like a little, a little business, which, which kind of went quite nicely. And that pretty much turned me on to the idea of like making money on the internet. How old um, were you when you um, were kind of in the middle of that? Uh, like 14 is when wow. I started it. Yeah. I'm 28 now, so okay. 14 years ago. Half a that ago. Is. Yeah, it is. Exactly. <laughs> 2002, baby. Um, <laughs> and and uh, so, yeah, so that's kind of like what first turned me on to the idea of, of the internet and that you could make money on it. And then um, I guess fast forward a little bit, I studied economics at university and um, when I graduated, I, rather than go and join like a, a graduate scheme with an investment bank, which is what most of my, my friends did, I basically, another friend of mine had just moved to Berlin. He was like, he called me. He was like, dude, I just moved to Berlin. It's super cheap and there's loads of Swedish girls. You should come. <laughs> I was like, yes, of course I'm going to come. <laughs> so I, I booked a one-way ticket there um, and uh, we started like a design agency. I guess if I had a real job, I'd be a designer, probably. And uh, we, uh, we had all these like lofty goals, and you know, like to build an amazing design agency and do like work for clients that we cared about and all that shit. And in the end, we became like a flash banner shop. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were just, <laughs> <That's great. laughs> uh, yeah. And and what's even worse is that the flashback, like all of our customers were free to play MMO publishers. And so, like, our briefs would be, like, make the sword bigger, make her cleavage deeper, you know, make make the wink sparklier. So it's, like, real soul-destroying crap. Um, and, but we made a lot of money. Um, we made a lot of money. We were very successful. We sold lots of advertising units, essentially. And uh, at the same time, you, you know, I, I kind of grew up in England with, and I think it's a bit less like this here in America, but probably still to some extent. I grew up with this kind of like uh, this thing being drilled into me that you basically choose kind of passion or potential wealth. <laughs> and those are two separate paths. <laughs> and like, 
you do fashion, you know, you go and work for the UN or you become an artist or you work at a charity, like you're never getting rich. And you choose money, you're going to go and sell your soul to Goldman Sachs and you're never going to enjoy your work, but hey, you'll make tons of money. And so that kind of like dichotomy is what I grew up with and that's kind of what I believe to be true. And then um, while I was in Berlin doing this kind of agency thing, um, I met some of the early SoundCloud engineers because SoundCloud is the space of Berlin. And SoundCloud was like the thing that turned me onto startups. That was like the first time I'd ever kind of known that startups were a thing, right? This was like back in the back in the day, I guess about um, you know, about uh, eight years ago. And so, you know, this the global startup phenomenon, the social network, all of that stuff, it wasn't really in popular consciousness. And so I met these SoundCloud guys and I was like, oh wow, this is like a thing that you can maybe combine the two things, right? You can combine um, passion with potential money. And so that was like really kind of like a, you know, the, <laughs> the metaphorical light bulb moment for me. Um, and so I pretty quickly sold up my shares in the agency, um, and moved back to London. And my, my objective was to get into the startup scene in London because, you know, the Berlin startup scene at the time was kind of bullshit. Um, and so I thought, okay, I'll move to London. That's where the VCs are. I can get to know the people in the scene and all that stuff. Um, and so that's what I did. Um, and so, you know, kind of fast forward a little bit time, I was interning at like a kind of um, seed stage venture fund um, and started working on the idea that became Rainforest with, with my co-founder um, in the evenings and weekends. And uh, the, the story somewhat concludes when um, I was kind of let go because I was a really terrible employee. Um, and it was a great decision. And I still, I still love and are friends with the people that I worked for there. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I've been fired from practically every job that I've ever had um, because so I'm it, just not very employable. And, and we have to hear more about that. Why is that? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I think, you know, usually the traits that make you a good founder are also traits that make you a horrible employee, right? Like you always speak your mind. You're never satisfied. You have very high standards. You're typically a bit like lazy, um, and it's like hard to motivate you unless you're kind of doing something for yourself type thing. Um, I think all of those are traits that most founders have, and the, that you know, all of those are traits that make you a horrible employee. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I yeah. Um. And so yeah. So so I I kind of I got let go from the job, and they were like, it was kind of cool though, because they were like, look you're a shitty employee, you're fired, like <laughs> paraphrasing, of course. And then, um, but hey, we heard that you and Russell are working on this thing, like we'd be interested in maybe funding this guy. And um, so I, being the idiot, like young male asshole that I was, um, was like, uh, screw you guys, like we don't need your crappy money, like we're going to YC, we're going to Silicon no Valley, we're going to make it, we're going to make it in America. <laughs> I totally claimed it, like oh, 100% claimed. And it, we hadn't even applied to YC at the time. We we had not even started right, creating an application. And to be honest, the idea just crystallized in my mind like when I said that to them. So basically, it, I made this outrageous claim. At this point, <laughs> at this point, what did you have as far as rainforest and the technology? Did you have you built anything, or was it still an idea? Yeah, we built like we we. I mean, the first version of rainforest was like. You know, like many people will probably be familiar with this. It was like the anti-lean startup, you know, like <laughs> if you take the antithesis of the lean startup, which is like never talk to any users, never do any research, <laughs> never do any validation and just build in like a dark room in isolation for like, you know, six months. That was what like Rainforest version one was. 
Um, and uh, so it's kind of funny, you know, you have to learn those. Like, I read the book and I was like, okay, cool, Eric, I'm, I'm into this. And then <laughs> proceed to make all the ideas, like all the mistakes <laughs> that, <laughs> that he's trying to teach against over the next 12 months. Um, but so anyway, that, that really, that, that kind of claim like lit a huge fire under our asses to get into YC. And I think that's a big part of, of how we managed to get in. You know, we, 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 we were first time applicants. We got an interview. We we're first time interviewees and we, we got a, offered a place. And that was pretty rare, at least at the time. Usually you had to go through a few cycles. And I, I definitely, at certain points in my life, I've definitely kind of embraced the notion of like burn the ships. <laughs> you know, like you know, burn the ship you arrived on the beach with. So there's no like the only way is success, basically. Um, not that I would recommend that as a as a, a life strategy, but that's I seem to have done that several times. Well, sometimes that works. Then you put on more focus yeah. on, and then you also like sometimes the world has strange ways of working when you really want something, and so uh, exactly, exactly, yeah. And and you, yeah, when when your back is against the wall, sometimes that's when you you have your best ideas and and when you do your, your most inspirational work, I think. Yeah. Um, and so then, yeah, and then we were in YC, and uh, that's and kind YC? of like, right? Oh, right. What's YC? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You mean not everyone is a yeah, not everyone knows. <laughs> um, so uh, YC stands for Y Combinator. Uh, y Combinator is kind of the original and um, uh, like completely uncontroversially still the best um, kind of startup accelerator. And startup startup accelerator is kind of like weird nomenclature. Um, and it, it, what it actually means is it means like um, a, uh, a kind of um, learning phase and um, kind of infrastructure for very early stage startups to go from kind of idea to minimum viable product and then to ideally your first kind of paying customers. Um, and so YC does that all as part of like this three month program and they have this very famous demo day at the end which is like when all of the startups in the program present their products, they pitch them and um, the investors in the audience kind of throw money at them <laughs> or at least that's the kind of popular you know the popular idea about it um so that's why i see how many how many uh companies graduated with you back in 2012 oh we, so we were a record yeah yeah it was like 83 or something. okay we were we were the biggest batch ever and we 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 refer to ourselves so we were summer 2012 batch we refer to ourselves as um the um the batch that broke YC because they'd been kind of scaling quite linearly until us. And then they, our batch represented like this big jump for like big jump in, in number of companies in the batch. And their, um, the, the, the kind of support systems and, and infrastructure kind of broke down a bit because they just weren't prepared to handle that many people, you know, um, that many companies. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, and the, and the key focus of YC is like this very, um, very hands-on, like human um, mentorship model from the partners of YC, who in most cases are former YC founders themselves, whose companies went through YC and had an exit, and now are kind of like returning some of that knowledge back to the community. Um, so, so you, that's the kind of style, and it's incredibly powerful because I think the big thing that differentiates them from a lot of the other kind of pretenders is that. All of the partners, all of the people who are giving you advice throughout this program actually did this themselves, right? They're not just like a VC who went to business school 
they're not, you know, they're not like a, you know, senior VP or something from a giant company who thinks they know what they're talking about. Like they actually started a company and went through the grind and the pain and the emotional roller coaster of, you know, being an early stage founder. And so the advice they give you is absolutely invaluable. Um, and I think that's probably why they still remain, you know, like the, the kind of foremost program. Yeah, between the advice and their network, you can't get any better. Yes. In the, in yeah, the absolutely. It's yeah, that logo is is pretty phenomenal. <laughs> like ha- having that logo, you know, against your kind of against your company that it kind of like marks you out as being legit, basically. <laughs> That's right. And and how was it coming from uh, London to the Bay Area? How, how was the transition? And were were you glad you made it, or was there some tough times? Um, it was pretty interesting. I mean, you know, it's not like a surprise or controversial statement at all that like, you know, in general, the Americans, you guys are much more kind of gung ho and, um, uh, uh, kind of, well, at least especially here on the West coast, much more optimistic, you know, and, and to, to sometimes like, like borderline levels, (laughs) like bordering on insanity, I think. Um, so like, for example, you know, when I was at the, at the seed funding thing in um, in London, you know, people would pitch us and they'd say, like, well, I'm building a 10 million pounds, you know, $15 million business over the next five years. And, like, that would be, like, this really ambitious thing. And everyone would be like, wow, you're amazing. That's so badass. And, like, <laughs> once I got to YC, there was, like, an 18-year-old pitching me on this, like, stupid idea and, you know, some, like, totally random thing. He's like, yeah, there's going to be a billion-dollar world-changing business in three years. And like with a total straight face, you know, and I would like start laughing and then realize like, oh, he's not taking the piss. This is really what he believes. And so I think the biggest impact it had on us personally was, you know, just kind of maybe moving the goalposts, right? Like, oh, okay, this is the level of ambition and like, you know, kind of self-confidence and self-belief that is expected. Whereas in Europe, it's much more like, you're expected to be self-deprecating and if you take yourself too seriously or you're too, you have too much self-belief, people are like, you're kind of an asshole. Um, so that, that was the biggest adjustment to make, I think. Um, and then, you know, I think it's really cool. The really cool thing here, and again, this is not like a new thing, but the really cool thing is that like people embrace risk, you know, and they embrace new ideas. And I think there's a, we have a, a value inside Rainforest, which is embrace the new. Um, that's one of our values. And basically the idea is that like, you know, people who are very wedded to their, their kind of expert status, they, they basically get into this situation where they can't really learn because they want to always be the expert. And if you're always the expert, then you're never the noob, right? You're never in the quest for knowledge. You're always like trying to prove to other people how much knowledge you have. And I think that in general, the, the kind of society here in Silicon Valley, at least is really, really open to, being the noob you know like being the one that doesn't really know anything and just being like in learning mode rather than trying to look good um and i think that 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 basically creates this atmosphere here where you can come up with these crazy stupid ideas and people like yeah that actually might work um (laughs) fuck it here's a few million dollars you know and i think most of the great companies and hopefully rainforest will will one day be counted amongst those um have started from ideas that seem actually pretty stupid um and rainforest is definitely one of those <laughs> yeah that that climate is uh silicon valley is, is unique i mean i think that's probably the case across the nation but it's, you know 
you can't no, no one matches compared to or no one compares to silicon valley with that kind of open attitude to help each other and the embrace the crazy attitudes I, I was curious do you think with exactly. the, um you know how we're very optimistic do you think sometimes there should be almost a balance between um how it is more in europe versus the united states or are you uh or are you all in for the the crazy crazy optimism i have to say that i mean i think that you see the downside of this with like you know the 2008 bubble and things like that like that's the kind of like i guess you could say dark side you know what i mean like that's the dark side of the the economists might say like irrational exuberance you know um and i think that it's deeply tied into this notion of the American dream, right? That anything's possible and that everyone in society, if they work hard enough and get a few breaks, could be Donald Trump. Well, God forbid, but you know what I mean? Like they could, <laughs> right. could, could make it to the this. top of American <laughs> capitalistic society. And so I, I personally, you know, like sociologically, I find, I find that notion quite damaging when, when you look at the reality for, for most people here, you know what I mean? I, I, it's it's hard to it's hard to really say that the American dream is that real anymore because it's like the society is not that mobile socially speaking and or economically and so I think that that's the kind of dark side to me right and, yeah. but in the in the in the kind of um, context of Silicon Valley I think it's amazing you know and and that's why I'm I firmly believe and obviously I voted with my feet I firmly believe that there's, there's no other Silicon Valley's being built. Like this whole notion of like, like, oh, let's create a Star Trek ecosystem is total bullshit. Um, and I've witnessed it firsthand. You know, I lived in, I lived in Paris, I lived in Berlin, I grew up in London and all of those are places which are theoretically, you know, startup hubs, right? Which are kind of building up and will eventually rival Silicon Valley maybe. And the reality is with each of those places that people like me, people who come here, they're like, I need to get to fucking Silicon Valley. Because <laughs> that's where the best investors are. That's where the best M&A opportunities are. That's where the best engineering talent is. You know? And so it's kind of self-selecting because the people who aren't that ambitious, who aren't like, okay, I really need to get there, they're the ones that stay in those local ecosystems. So you have this kind of creaming off effect where basically the best startups in each ecosystem manage to get out of it. <laughs> and so it's this like, self-perpetuating thing of mediocrity because it's like all the really amazing startups leave and so you're just left with the ones that aren't really amazing um and so i mean you know obviously that's a huge generalization like you know shout out to all the startups everywhere what you're doing is right of course crazy of course. and like incredibly hard but you know as a general statement i, I definitely that. i think and that, i think that sorry go ahead oh, no, yeah. I, was, yeah, I was just saying, i think most people would agree with you yeah, even though yeah. we don't all live in the Silicon Valley, we understand where you're coming from. And yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's 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 too bad because I see a lot I mean, you know, I have several friends who are who are kind of plugging away in England and when I look at like the, the businesses they built and the underlying health of those businesses, um, you know, against the kind of valuations they're able to get and how much capital they're able to attract, it's like absolutely night and day between here and there, you know. Um and and uh, I, I guess a lot of people who are listening to this who might be outside of Silicon Valley, you know, if you're in the kind of Midwest or in the East Coast, even, it's kind of the same thing, right? You take this big valuation hit just by not being in this little weird, like, you know, 20 square mile area. Um, and, and that's definitely a strange phenomenon. But I think what it means is that people who are kind of rational, they, they try 
and do everything they can to move their company to it. Yeah, you should be a pitch person for uh, Silicon Valley. Well, I, actually, <laughs> I, actually, I think most people that live there are a pitch person. Just <laughs> everyone I talk to. Yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> it's true. There's definitely a thing of like the kind of California, like hippie, yoga, like love the world type <laughs> shit as well. I mean, people are definitely like amazing evangelists of the place just because once you move there, you're like, wow, there is actually something quite infectious about that real optimism that is kind of super pervasive here. Um, although obviously, you know, right now we're seeing like the dark side to all this with the, in San Francisco, you know, with the, the rising property prices and, and the, the city is changing true. very quickly because only people working within technology can really afford to live here anymore. Um, and, and I don't necessarily think that's a good thing long term. No, no, that, and that's a whole separate podcast that we could get into. So you yeah, can, yeah, you can yeah, come it on is. In a couple months. <laughs> I'm like <laughs> way <laughs> over. <laughs> and we'll talk about Trump too. Talk housing podcast. politics. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> nice. No, housing yeah. politics and Trump. Um, <laughs> so we'll, we'll get into rainforest before we do. This is kind of lead up to it, is that you know when you look back on your experiences for rainforest, you know how did those experience? Was there any particular experience or? Uh, um, thing that happened that helped you kind of start rainforest or stuff that you didn't want to recreate or redo because you did it in the past and then didn't work out or any lessons that um, helped you start? Yeah, there was. I, I think there was probably a, a few pivotal moments. The first was when I met the SoundCloud guy, um, and so kind of learned that oh, startups are a thing. And I, you know, they they have a very startupy startup. You know, it's in this like beautiful big Berlin loft, and everyone's in like beanie bags, and they all like. Beautiful young people with tattoos and all that shit, and so I was like, "This is the life for me." Um, and then, the, I guess the other pivotal moment was the girl that I was dating for a while. Her dad was an M and A lawyer in a like big shot law firm in uh, Germany, actually. Um, and um, he, we were, you know, chit chatting, and I was talking to him about like the web stuff I was doing and all that stuff. And I, I was still very much of the opinion like, "Oh, this is fun, but like, this isn't really a thing." And, uh, he was like, I still remember this. We were on like the subway, um, in, on, on the subway in Paris, actually. And he was just like, you just, you should do this as a career. Like, this is what you're supposed to do. Hmm. Um, and I think it sounds kind of cheesy, but it was like that. I, I still remember that moment as being a moment when I was like, Oh, that's true. Like it is possible. Maybe <laughs> I can do this. Um, and someone giving you that kind of license. Like, I think it's probably a bit different now. You know, it's more like, duh, like, Everyone wants to be Zuckerberg. <laughs> um, but back then it was like the web, like the idea of making a career on with software was much more, I think, outlandish. And, and that was like a super key moment for me because, you know, that, that guy that I respected and has been very professionally successful was like, you know, this is where you should put your chips kind of thing. Interesting. Huh? Yeah. You got to like those pivotal, pivotal moments in your life. That, that, yeah. What, yeah. What and they always you... come at such random points, don't they? <laughs> yeah. And what if you didn't have those? You know, what if he didn't say that? What if he said you should go be a, you know, go into M and A instead? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He could have exactly. He could have very easily said like, "Yeah, fuck this internet stuff. It's just a game. Like, you should go and be a lawyer. Like, have yeah. a real career, idiot." <laughs> <laughs> oh, you never know. I suppose also we we have selective hearing, so we kind of hear and perk up when oh, we totally. hear something. <laughs> um, totally. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into a uh, rainforest a little bit and. uh we only have so much time left, but, uh, so can you, can you tell, tell us about, uh, rainforest and, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about it, but you know, how does, how does it work? And, um, how do you come up with the idea? 
Totally, yeah. So I was trying to avoid getting into pitch mode, but um, uh, pitch so <laughs> as you imagine, I probably pitched this a hundred thousand times at this point, four years in. Um, but yeah, Rainforest is like, well, our aim is to replace the QA team, and so you can kind of think of what our mission is as a company as becoming like the AWS for QA. So just like AWS has all of these different components that can replace. Um, or provide the infrastructure that you would have had to build internally before, we're kind of doing the same thing for QA. And where we've, we've started is with um, specifically like regression uh, and functional testing, um, usually cross-browser. And so people, customers of ours kind of um, offload a lot of the, you know, real manual kind of like laborious work that they're, their internal QA teams are doing, um, or they offload a bunch of what they were using automation for, or they, you know, kind of get rid of their offshore team and, and bring it in-house and have us run it. So that's kind of what Rainforest does. Um, and, and, and what's, uh, uh, what's QA? Oh, right. <laughs> um, good, good question. So QA is, is uh, the acronym for Quality Assurance. And um, quality assurance is basically finding bugs. And so it's like when you build software, you have like these unintended consequences where things don't work the way they should. Uh, in the software industry, we call those bugs. And um, about 30% of, of software budgets are spent just finding those bugs. And, and that kind of sounds a bit outrageous, but it's like if you imagine each piece of software is like a full, an entire novel, and that novel has you know 10 or 20 people writing it in parallel, as you can imagine, there are some spelling mistakes that, that make it through. And so, you know, the, it's, a, it's a huge, huge job to try and find these spelling mistakes um, before they get through to your reader, right? Before, before those bugs affect your customer. And so what we do is we give customers a very, very easy way to find those bugs without, you know, having to do the real labor of that, which is like hiring the team and, you know, managing them and motivating them and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. And how did you come up with the idea? Uh, it's actually a really dumb, really dumb, like uninspired <laughs> story. So we, um, <laughs> well, uninspiring story. Um, so we, we got into YC with like a pretty different idea. We, we started doing kind of spend analytics, at AWS and, um, the, you know, and we pretty quickly realized slash were told by YC, like, this is a stupid idea. Like you should stop working on it. It's not exciting. Um, and so, um, we worked on a bunch of different ideas and, and, and most of them were related to developer tooling. Um, and so the, the problem was that no one ever really wanted to pay for any of it. And so they were like, yeah, this is cool, but like we pay like $10 a month or something. Um, and you know, when you work out the economics of that and we were in Silicon Valley to build like a huge company, it's pretty hard to build a huge company at $10 a month. Um, and so, we, in frustration, we basically emailed everyone that we've been asking to try our stuff and try these little projects we were working on and just said, look, what would you pay at least $1,000 a month? Like for us, to, like what problem would you pay us $1,000 a month to solve for you? And uh, most of the people that replied to us, which was surprisingly uh, many, most of the people said QA. Um, and that's how we got huh. our first. Or, you know, they didn't say QA in so many words. They said testing or like, you know, help me find bugs before release or, you know, help the, my co-founder spend less time checking the, the application before we release it and more time writing code. But what it came down to was QA. 
And so we got our first nine paying customers um, from that email. <laughs> um, wow. And my co-founder and I became a QA team. And so <laughs> we, we, we had no real theories at the beginning of how to do this. We just figured like, look, everyone hates this. It feels a bit like payments kind of pre-stripe, you know, where everyone's like, this sucks, but I guess I just have to do it. So maybe there's an opportunity. And so we kind of dove headfirst into it. And bear in mind, this is, this is about a month before, um, uh, demo day, you oh, know, wow. this, this day when you have to present <laughs> everything to investors. <laughs> and so our first code, like our first commit in our, in the, in the, in the GitHub repo for Rainforest is like, you know, July, 30th or something and the, the pitch was like august 30th um so we were kind of scrambling and at the, at the time one of the one of our friends in the batch was this guy called sid and sid had built one of the first um scaled applications based on mechanical turk um and uh, mechanical turk is uh, one of amazon's web services and basically it's like a job board um for hundreds of thousands of workers all over the world and you post a job with a certain dollar value attached to it and if uh, one of the workers does the job successfully you pay them um and you know it's like many job boards i suppose but the the twist is that mo it's mostly driven programmatically so most of the work that's been put on the job board is not created by like a human filling out a form. It was created by a computer like spinning up that job. And so um, he had just kind of sold that company to LinkedIn. Um, and so he was like in our YC batch working on something new. And we were bitching at him saying like, oh, dude, we're spending like 18 hours a day doing fucking QA for people. <laughs> it's not like little, you know, Super mountain sexy. view, yeah. single room. <laughs> yeah, it's so sexy. And he was like, oh, you guys should check out Mechanical Turk. You could totally get the Mechanical Turk workers to do the QA for you. Um, and so that was like really the genesis of Rainforest. And, you know, four years later, we're still pretty much doing the same thing, just much, much better. <laughs> so, and, and that's just, that's the main difference. You're essentially crowdsourcing the QA part, whereas most companies have dedicated teams and you, you help. Exactly. And we'll relieve some of that work if necessary. So how, how has the platform evolved since that uh, first realization you could use kind of a me mecha mechanical Turk method? Um, you started yeah, that I and... mean, yeah, it's a good question. So I guess the, the things that are important to customers are quality, obviously, right? So if you're relying on us to tell you, hey, um, is my sign-up working in all the browsers that I care about? And we tell you, yeah, it does. And then you ship it and it's broken um, and users can't sign up. Well, you're probably not going to want to pay us much longer, you know? Um, and so <laughs> so the most important thing is is quality um, and the quality of the results we provide. So we that's a constant, you know, that's a constant um, work in progress. Um, but we've made huge strides towards you know, 100% um, correct results. So we're getting closer and closer to that. That's what we spent a lot of time on. Um, and, you know, the short version of how we do that is like, the you know, we have roughly 60,000 of these uh, these monthly active testers at this point. Um, so 60,000 humans around the world who, who at least once a month do some work for one of our wow. customers. And you can think of like our job as managing them just like you would any other team of humans. Um, but we have another interesting constraint, which is that we never know who they are beyond an anonymized ID and we never see them. We never 
sit them down. We never tell them like, you know, like buck your ideas up, buddy. You're doing a bad job. Like all of our interactions with them are programmatic. And so essentially the, the key kind of technology and the, the key differentiator that we've built is the ability to manage these people programmatically, which is about figuring out, are they behaving in a trustworthy manner? And do we think they're a high quality tester? Um, and so, you know, every single thing that anyone, any one of these workers does in our system is being monitored and will then impact their own individual reputation, which then impacts like whether customers will see the results they're providing. Because are, um, are, so, are the testers scored or how do you um, rate them? Yeah, anyway? exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, so there's like a global ranking system and, and essentially, you know, based on, on various things that we observe, based on all kinds of interesting heuristics that get fed into our machine learning algos, like, for example, what time of day it is locally and like what version of their browser they're on, right? Like if, if you're many versions behind, you know, the current version of Chrome, for example, we've seen that to be correlated with lower quality work. Um, so there's all kinds of interesting things that impact a worker's reputation score and every single job they do will impact that reputation score as well. And so, you know, workers with higher reputation get access to higher paying jobs and, you know, all of those kind of things. Um, so the quality piece is, is what we spend the majority of our effort on. Um, speed has also been hugely important for us. So most of our customers are running rainforest as part of what's called um, a continuous deployment. Um, cycle. And so the idea here is just traditionally you would deploy, you would update your web application, you know, maybe once every six months or once every month or once every two weeks. Um, but you would do it on some arbitrary time cycle, right? And uh, with continuous deployment, which is kind of like this new idea really in the software industry, um, with continuous deployment, people are like, okay, we're going to deploy 10 times a day. Um, or, you know, once every 10 seconds, like Amazon does. And so um, what we do for those customers is Rainforest sits just before the deployment. So one of their developers says, okay, um, I think the changes I've made are ready to go live into production. Um, I, want to, I want to deploy them. And um, the, we're like uh, one of the automated steps in that process that basically says like, yep, everything works fine. You're good to deploy, like all good. Um, or, oh, no, you broke something, there's a bug, uh, you probably shouldn't deploy until you've looked at that. Um, so the speed is really, really important. Um, and then I guess just in general, you know, just like general becoming less shitty as a platform. <laughs> you know, like when you start out, you basically build like the most trivial, simple stuff. And then you're constantly learning from your users like, oh, okay, this it's really useful. This isn't that useful. Like these are the important things in the platform. These are the things that we should spend more time on. And of course, as we're, as we're getting more mature as a company and as we're getting more and more customers and those customers are moving up markets, um, we are building more of like the kind of enterprise features. Um, so, so that's kind of like, those are the three major things that have, have changed over, over the past gotcha. year. And, and, and you guys are growing pretty fast. How, you know, what mistakes have you made or how are you learning how to grow rapidly? And, uh, <laughs> we've made all the mistakes under the sun. <laughs> I think, you know, at, at least from the perspective of like the CEO, um, and, and the, the kind of founding team, the, the key, 
like the the really hard game, the key thing about building a company, especially a software company, is is hiring. Um, and so, you know, we can't talk about any of our growth really outside of outside of you know in in, in isolation from from hiring. Um, and and the hiring has been the thing that's driven the growth, right? So the the right engineers in the early days, the right um, salespeople, the right sales leader, the right marketing people. Like all of these things, like combine together to create a team that's able to deliver this kind of growth. Um, and to give you an idea, last year we went we went from kind of low six figures to low um, seven figures um, in in annual recurring revenue, and we grew about nine hundred percent. And this year we want to go um, we want to four x our revenue. So. We've, we've got kind of pretty aggressive goals. It looks <laughs> yes. like we're probably going to hit that. <laughs> wow. Um, wow. And, and so, you know, most of that has been about building an incredibly solid product um, that customers like with, with good churn numbers. You know, if too many of your customers are churning and, and canceling their service, you get in a situation where it's very, very hard to grow fast, right? Because you're just trying to replace existing customers. Um, and we have an amazing sales team um, a, a, an awesome marketing team, and and basically at some point you, you kind of build this machine, right, where you have a very predictable kind of pipeline. From someone comes to your website, and you know one percent of those people will you know uh, request a demo, and of those people, you know twenty percent will be worth selling to, you know, um, and then of those people, twenty percent will actually buy. You know, and so you kind of figure out, all right, what revenue number do we want to hit? And then you back work from there to, okay, how many visitors need to get our website? And so it's kind of, once you've done SaaS for a little while, the beauty of it is you get this really, really predictable engine for generating revenue, you know, whereas in the early days, if you're listening to this and you're in like the first couple of years or whatever, and you're much before a million dollars of ARR, you know, it's very lumpy, right? Like you don't really know how to sell. There probably isn't really a process. You probably get lucky on some deals and unlucky on others. Um, and you, you don't have that kind of expertise of running that like real hardcore sales process where it's all just like this very predictable numbers machine. Um, and so that's kind of, that's what's enabled us to get to where we are today. That was a, a very well described, uh, kind of SaaS model. I mean, you, <laughs> I think I think Jason Lemkin would be uh, pretty proud of. Uh, I hope that, so. Yeah, I that hope was so. pretty impressive. Uh. <laughs> Jason's like my number one guy, and and that's actually a great point as well because like the you know really I can't I can't talk about how um, I can't talk about how we were able to grow so fast without talking about our investors. You know, um, Jason um, Lemkin, and if you don't know him and you're interested in that, you should know him. Yeah, he's, the guy, um, right? he's kind of like. Yeah. He's the guy. He's like the kind of like Jesus of SaaS, right? Um, and so Jason, um, although I'm not sure he'd like me saying that, um, Jason w- has been incredibly influential and important for us, you know, as a kind of mentor for me and as a member of our board helping us make good decisions. Um, he drove a lot of our strategy around our kind of sales growth last year um, and very much helped with hiring and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, Jim Andelman, who was our other board member at the time, um, and, and still is, but those were the two board guys outside of me and Russell. Um, he has also been really, really helpful with the early stage SaaS knowledge. So he has a whole bunch of companies which are 
you know, in the first kind of couple of years of ramping their revenue. And of course, most of these people face similar problems, you know, so a really good investor can give you that pattern matching um, and that mentorship to help you grow faster. And so those guys were, were completely instrumental for us. Interesting. Well, oh, we're almost out of time, I think. Um, I was going to I get one more question for you is, uh, you know, you, you mentioned hiring. What, who are some of your f- first like key hires? I think that's always a, a big deal for startups. And uh, how did you find them and how do you know they were the right people? Um, yeah, that is the key question, right? That's the absolutely key question. I think the first the first key hire that we made um, is a guy that was a guy called Simon. He's our first engineer. Um, he's an amazing, amazing engineer, a lovely guy. And, you know, I think for any company, any software company that's like running itself as a startup, the, the, the early engineers that you hire really define a lot about the future of the company. What is the culture of the company? What's the relationship between the people that work there and the founders? What's the kind of, you know, what are the things that matter to you? How fast do you move? How quickly do you build product? Um, and so, you know, that first engineering hire is, is what I would spend a lot of time on. If I was just, you know, if it was still just founders. Um, and then outside of that, I would say the other really big one is our, is our VP of sales. Um, we went through three first sales guys until we found our wow. Steve Farland. Wow. Um, and, you know, most of that was my incompetence. You know, those guys <laughs> and gals have gone on to have great careers um, at other companies. It's not that they were no good. It's just that we were like, we hired the wrong profile or, you know, from the wrong industry or whatever. And so our VP sales, he, he's been absolutely crucial to the success of the company. You know, if you look at our revenue, if you look at our growth curve, like before and after he came in, there's an extremely clear inflection point when he joined, when, you know, like it goes join? from like very lumpy. Well, he yeah. joined in like April of last year and we were growing like on average, like four, three or 4% every month. And the first month he joined, we grew 20% and we kept growing 20% um, from there until, I mean, uh, until uh, January this year, actually. Wow. <laughs> um, so, so he, he's delivered like amazing growth and the, the sales team that he's built out, you know, um, is, is been a huge part of our success. Um, so those are the key highs. I would say also, you know, the one other one is last year, once, once Farland, once our VP of sales had started really performing well, and I was kind of like, okay, he's got this. He doesn't need me to be kind of like deeply involved. I can focus on some other problem. Um, we started kind of understanding the role of customer success. Um, and the, the three customer success ladies that we have right now um, are absolutely amazing. Like without them, um, you know, we'd be, we'd be nowhere really. Um, and the role that those guys do in a SaaS business is they basically keep, you know, they keep your customers really happy and excited and they provide a very, very, you know, high, high throughput communication between your customers and your engineering team. And they're the ones that are responsible for a lot of the experiences that our customers have, you know. Um, so that's definitely something that I've seen people be too slow to hire. Um, and we were probably too slow to hire it. And I'd say, you know, a really high quality experienced customer success person um, makes a huge, huge difference uh, to 
to your long-term revenue growth. Um, so those guys have been super important as well. And and what are the for the salesperson? It sounded like the impact was pretty immediate. What did he do that was different than where you, what you were doing before? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. I mean, I've thought about that a lot myself. Like, <laughs> I guess the short the the short version is that he he knew how to run a process. Okay. And so sales is a process, right? And you know, a a not bad conversion rate from leads that you talk to um, to to close deals is ten percent. But as a founder, especially as one not coming from a sales background, um, the you know. Only having 10% of the deals that you, you talk to actually work out and provide you money, that's like, that feels like a terrible failure, you know? And so it's really, really hard to stay motivated to keep selling um, when it feels like the, the sales just happen kind of randomly. You know what I mean? Um, and so the, I think the key thing that he did is he was like, look, it's a process. We'll figure out our conversion rate. We'll sell a bunch. We'll learn and we'll go from there. And so, you know, the, his kind of comfort with that process and his knowledge that, like, we have something we can probably sell here, like, let's just go and, like, run the process for a couple months and see where we end out, that kind of patience is something that I do not have, you know? <laughs> and so I think it was that. And then it was just a combination of, like, that plus, like, you know, lots of things came together, right? The product was finally mature yeah, enough yeah. that... The churn rate went way down. Um, our brand started going up a bit because, you know, Jason invested and so people started hearing about us. So a lot of things kind of came together, really. Gotcha. Okay. And what was your what was your revenue level when you hired your first uh, sales person? Um, the first salesperson yeah. or the the fourth first salesperson? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Let's go fourth. Um, so when remember? we hired him, yeah. we were – yeah, yeah, we were about 400k ARR or something like that. Okay, okay, gotcha. That's helpful. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, this has been awesome, and uh, wish we could talk all day, but we should probably uh, <laughs> we should probably end it at some point. And uh, definitely, right, definitely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but no, this is very insightful, and definitely appreciate your time. And uh, it's been uh, yeah, a my pleasure. pleasure to I'm still cheering. Yeah, right. likewise, dude. Thanks, Fred, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Flyover Labs from uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and we'll see you next time.